And I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 28. I, I couldn't get to my copy of our church Bible in my office this week, so I don't have a page number for you. Luke 10, 25 through 28. Hear the word of our God. Behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested Jesus, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? So he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You have answered rightly. Do this, and you will live. This is the word of our God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this, your word. And now, Lord, we pray that you would do a great thing within us tonight and in the weeks ahead, that the things that we just sang would be more and more true in our hearts, in our emotions, in our mind, in our life, that we would love your law and long to meditate upon it day and night, that we would with David find it to be an exquisite delight even as it warns us from the ways of sin. For we ask all of this for the glory of King Jesus our Lord. Amen. We uh, come back to the catechism. Early on in the shorter catechism, there's, there's a question. What do the scriptures principally teach? And... I I know you're all rushing to answer that, but um, the scriptures principally teach what we are to believe concerning God and what duties God requires of man. Over the past two years, on and off, as we've looked at the catechism, we've seen what the scriptures teach us concerning God, his being and attributes, his work of creation, his work of redemption, his sending of his son as mediator. Everything we've looked at so far in the catechism has fallen under that first category, what the scriptures principally teach about God. And now the rest of the catechism turns this corner and looks at what duties God requires of man. And it it kind of, you can break that remainder of the catechism up into three categories, all that have to do with our duties towards God. First, most generally, the moral law of God, the Ten Commandments. Then, those applied more specifically in terms of our duties regarding worship. And so, the Catechism will look at preaching, the sacraments, and then finally, the Lord's Prayer as a model for all prayer, a duty which God requires of us, that we commune with Him in prayer through Christ. And so... 
that, that's the big picture of where we're going over the next, you know, two more years, maybe, however long. But tonight we start with that, uh, that more general thought. What God requires of us is obedience to his revealed will. We were just talking about revealed will and secret will in our book study yesterday. God doesn't leave us guessing what he expects from us. We don't have to have obedience to a secret will that we have to figure out. We are required to be obedient to God's revealed will. It's revealed to us in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, and it's summarized in the Ten Commandments. The the important thing to note there is that the Ten Commandments are a summary. The moral law of God was not first given at Mount Sinai. The moral law was first written down at Mount Sinai. But what was written down in the Ten Commandments is a summary of the moral law that was written on man's heart at creation. Go and read the beginning of Romans. God's law is written as a book on our hearts. We suppress that truth and unrighteousness. Hence God had Moses take a chisel and he inscribed on these stones a summary for us. We, we can think of the moral law as a book written on our hearts. The Ten Commandments are the table of contents. You know, you, you can pick up a book that you don't really know where it's going or what it's going to say. You can flip open to the table of contents, and unless it's a really bad publication, chapter one, that's not helpful. But if it's a publication that says chapter one, only one God. Oh, okay, I know where chapter one's going here. I don't know all the content of how that works out in the chapter. If he wrote 20 pages for that chapter, one, one line for the title isn't going to tell me everything, but at least tells me the direction he's going. It tells me what to think about. And chapter two, no idols or, or whatever the, you know, the chapter titles might be. If you're reading something by Kevin DeYoung on the Ten Commandments, the titles are way more exciting than that. If you're reading something by uh, Dauma, one of the great ethics professors of the last hundred years, then his book on the Ten Commandments has better titles than that, too. But you look at the titles, and it gives you a direction, right? So we have the moral law written on our hearts. God gives the Ten Commandments as a guide, a table of contents that will show us the summary of the book. Well, I'm not going to spend more time on that, but realize that if the moral law is something written on the heart since creation, it is for us. If God's moral law didn't start till Sinai, then it might just be for Israel back then. But the law is written on our hearts. And so you can read stories from missionaries about, about two cannibals who are converted one of them sits down next to the other at the Lord's table. And the man next to him, the chief of another tribe, had cannibalized his parents. And now they're both Christians. 
and they're taking the Lord's Supper because that's the amazing grace of God. But they talk about in, a, in an interview, and I can't remember what book I was reading from what missionary, but you, you read multiple stories like this where they talk about, okay, it's a cannibalistic tribe, but, but you know that it's a vicious thing you're doing. You, you don't do the thing thinking, what a good moral thing I'm doing tonight at this supper. You, you're, you're a cannibal. And, and what you're doing is disgracing intentionally your enemy and, and doing something vicious. And they know that. Why? How? Because the law of God was written on their hearts before the missionary opened up the Ten Commandments to them. And you can do that with all the commandments, with stories from missionaries throughout the centuries. The law of God is for us because it is a creational law written on our hearts. But tonight I want to focus on a little differently. I, I want to not just have a sermon that the law of God is for you, that the Ten Commandments are for you. I I want us to consider that the the Ten Commandments and the greater law that they summarize is actually a glorious duty of joy for the believer. Uh, that, That keeping God's law should bring you, David said it, great delight. Or as one translator puts it, exquisite joy. Because I think that's, I don't think I need to convince any of you that the Ten Commandments are for you. But I think we constantly need to examine our hearts to ask, do I believe this is a joyous thing? Exquisite delight from God to obey him. Yeah, our our hearts say no. And so let's think about the Ten Commandments and the law of God in terms of why they are a joy to us. I have three thoughts, and I'm sure there are many more as to why it would be a joy. Uh, But three thoughts tonight about the Ten Commandments to convince us that they are a joyous thing to study. The, The first is that the Imago Dei, the image of God. When was the last time you thought about the image of God and studied the Ten Commandments. I, I actually don't know if anyone's had me do that, ever. I was thinking about that this week. In our modern day, you, you hear Imago Day a lot used by progressive Christianity and deconstructionists and liberal Christians. And usually what they're using Imago Day to emphasize is well, everyone's made in the image of God. So stop being mean. And by mean, I mean, stop talking about ethics. That's the absolute opposite of what we ought to be saying and concluding from the image of God. Because if we want to say, how can I be the best image of God on this earth, in this fallen realm? If God shows us what that looks like, of course he does in Christ. But what does Christ show us it looks like? Keeping the law of God 
day and night. The Ten Commandments are God saying, this is how an image bearer ought to live. And if we think about the Ten Commandments then as a a reflection of the righteousness of our holy God, we, we remember that when we look in a mirror, it's not the exact thing we see, is it? Um, my being is not in the mirror. God's divinity and absolute otherness from us is not found in us. But we reflect something of him back. And what we reflect back is a righteousness in the Ten Commandments. And I think the Ten Commandments are even verbed, uh, verbalized. Grammatically, they are presented to us in a way that emphasizes this reflection aspect. So we can think about the preface to the Ten Commandments. The preface to the Ten Commandments is... I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. We can say from that, he therefore has sovereignty over us. And that's the right thing to conclude from that preface. He's our king. He redeemed us. Therefore, we are bound to keep all his commandments. But, but notice that it's I am. And then the commandments come as the therefore you. Because I am, therefore you. That's a reflection, isn't it? Because I redeemed you, therefore you live in this righteousness. That's a reflection. Or or think about commandments 2, 3, and 4. They each have this reflection thought built into them. So when you look at the second commandment, and by the way, they're right there in your bulletin. You can... Look at them right there, right now, if you want. The second commandment, you shall not because I, the Lord, am. You see that? You shall not. Well, why shouldn't we? Because I, the Lord, am. We are to reflect something from the reality that he is a jealous God. If you struggle with God being jealous, go and read the chapter about that in Packers Knowing God. It's excellent. It's a good thing that God is jealous, not a wicked thing. It's a righteous thing. And because he is this way, therefore our life ought to reflect that in a specific way about worship. Or the third commandment. The third commandment. You shall not for or because the Lord will not. See the reflection again? Why shouldn't I? Why do I live a certain way and not another way? Because God will not ignore how we treat his name. So we are to reflect the right way. Of treating his name. We are to treat his name the way he treats his name. Or the fourth commandment. 
you do this because I have done this. You can pick Deuteronomy or Exodus, either one. It's the same thing with the fourth commandment, just a different statement about what God has done. In the one he says, you shall keep my Sabbath because at creation I kept it and hallowed it. And at the, in the other he says, you shall keep my Sabbath because I redeemed you from slavery. But both of them are reflections. You do this because I have done this. And even though the rest of the commandments and the Ten Commandments aren't explicitly that reflection language, we could do the same thing with each one of them, couldn't we? We are to live a certain way. Why? Because God is being arbitrary. Here, I guess Moses, you should probably have ten laws to give the people. So take these. No, God is saying, image bearer, reflect me. I've redeemed you. You were the shattered image. But I've redeemed you. I'm creating you in Christ Jesus for good works. Reflect me. It's a reflection of him. How I use the name of the Lord reflects how he views his own name. Or how I use the name of the Lord displeases him for misrepresenting him to the world. How I use the Lord's day reflects how God views his creative and redemptive work, or it disdains God for hallowing it. And how I worship, how I teach my children to worship, how I approach art, and how I approach decorating things, either reflects the one true living invisible God or it reflects a God of my own making. So the Ten Commandments are about Imago Dei, imaging God to the world around us. We tend to think of the Ten Commandments, we tend to usually ask questions about me. But you see how this first point should bring us great joy. Because it's not about me. It's about God. And his glory. And his image. In a dark world that needs to see his image. Keeping the Ten Commandments, therefore, should be an exquisite delight. For keeping the Ten Commandments is intricately tied to our witness of the one living and true God to the world. Even something as as mundane as how we honor our parents, right? Is a means of imaging God. That sounds weird. God incarnate came to earth and showed us what it is to honor not only God the Father, but sinful parents. Imago Dei. Right there in the Ten Commandments. Well, that's the first reason why it should be a joy to study and to seek to live the Ten Commandments, the moral law of God. It's a means for us to, to get to express God to the world, image of God. 
But secondly, because it's a law of love. And here there are three texts right out of the mouth of Jesus that tell us that the Ten Commandments are not a burden. Not the contrast to love. But love expressed. Three, three texts. We read one of them this evening, but re- well, really four texts, right? John fourteen fifteen. If you love me, what are you going to do? You're going to keep my commandments, says Jesus. Do you love him? Here's how you express it. Well, uh, you know, maybe we look at that verse and say, well, that's Jesus not talking about the Ten Commandments. He doesn't say, if you love me, keep the Ten Commandments. He says, keep my commandments. And, And his commandments, as we all know, as found in Matthew 22 and Mark 12, are love the Lord your God with all your heart and your neighbor as yourself. Those are Christ's commandments. That's not the Ten Commandments. An obscene number of commentaries say that. Those, those men, maybe some women, but let's just make it the men. Those men don't deserve to have been published. Why? Because Matthew, Matthew 22 and Mark 12, is Christ giving a new law to replace the old Ten Commandments? When... And maybe some of the children can help me out here. I, I don't know. No, no pressure. But if I were to say, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your might, what's the reference? Deuteronomy 6.5. Wait, wait a second. That's the Old Testament. That's supposed to be Jesus' law of love. But there's a great catchy tune that Caleb, I think, knows that forces him to know that it's Deuteronomy 6.5. Well, yeah, but not the second one Jesus gives. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's not Deuteronomy. That's Leviticus. Uh, Of course, the modern American Christian doesn't know it's Deuteronomy 6.5. Or Leviticus 19, verse 18, because they don't read Deuteronomy and Leviticus. And so, and so Jesus is getting rid of the Old Testament Ten Commandments, and he's giving us two new commandments. No. No, Jesus is saying, in fact, it's right here, Matthew 22, verse 40, having quoted those two verses from the Pentateuch, from Leviticus and Deuteronomy, Jesus says, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. The entire Old Testament, Jesus is saying. The whole Old Testament finds its its establishment on the fact that the law that God gave is a law of love. Keep this lovingly. The Ten Commandments hang on love the Lord 
with all your heart and all your soul and all your might and love your neighbor as yourself. It's a law of love. And uh, we, should, we should want to express that love, shouldn't we? It, it should be a joy to know that the way God is telling us to live is not a mean way to live. But that's what we're told, isn't it? If you, uh, if you talk about ethics, what you do with your body, and even bring in Deuteronomy, where it's expounding upon you shall not commit adultery, you're mean. Why do you have to be mean all the time? Jesus just wants you to love people. And Jesus says, the way to love them, even if they hate you, is to keep his commandments. But more importantly, the way to love him is to keep his commandments. It's the law of love. And this isn't something that's so far that, well, how could anyone have ever... I've read the Old Testament. How could anyone think the Pentateuch is a law of love? We read it. The fourth text about this law of love. Luke chapter 10. And here's this lawyer. Which means he gave his life to studying Deuteronomy and Leviticus. That was his job in that culture. He was an Old Testament scholar. He would never have said that because they didn't have the New Testament. But he's what we would call an expert in Leviticus and in Deuteronomy. And Jesus says, what is written in the law? What does the law say? What's your reading of it? You, know, you, could, you could hear Christ say that and think, ah, Jesus is being relativistic. What's your truth? How, how do you read the law? What's your truth? Well, that's, of course, not what Jesus is saying. Because when the man gives these exact scripture texts as a summary of God's law, Jesus says, you have answered rightly. You could have answered wrongly. But you gave the right answer. You see, the man saw. Whether he had faith in Christ or not, he saw that the law had always taught love. Love for God. Love for our fellow men and women. I, I use that uh, imagery of, a, of the law, the moral law of God being a book written on our hearts. The Ten Commandments are the table of contents. Christ in these passages is the blurb on the back of the book. Right? You, you pull the book off the shelf. Oh, what's this book about? And the summary of the book on the back of the cover says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. If it were a book, it would have an endorsement underneath. This is sweeter than honey. David. And then you flip it open. You see the table of contents for more info. And then you read the book. That's... 
That's what we're being given by Christ here. What's the book about? It's about love. Now, I think studying the Ten Commandments are so important for all of us. Because all of us Christians tend to be somewhere on a spectrum. And that spectrum, and I'm talking about true believers here. On one end of the spectrum is the checklist believer. The checklist believer hears, we're going to have a series on the Ten Commandments, and says, yes! And I hope Nathan uses the larger catechism, because then I'll get my checklist. I'll know every detail of what it means to keep this law. And I love the larger catechism, and I'll probably be quoting from it this year. But I think if that's how you view the larger catechism, you're misunderstanding the larger catechism's point. Its point isn't to tell you all the ways that you have to do things to keep the law. I think those godly men sat in that room and kept brainstorming ways of breaking the law until they could all agree that no one who was a believer could possibly think they'd kept all of these. Uh, the, the larger catechism's trying to get us to the point of saying... I have fallen short of the glory of God. But, but some of us are checklist believers, right? If I, if I can just have the checklist to know if I'm doing right or wrong. And if you are more on that end of the spectrum of believer, knowing that the Ten Commandments are a law of love should bring you up short. Because the checklist by itself, that checklist approach by itself, can't love. And you might be able to check everything on the list and not do it lovingly. And then you haven't kept the law at all. And I think that's very important for us, we believers, to to know. Because every time you hear someone saying disgruntled with churches, right? They, they say, well, these unbelievers I know are more Christian than most churchgoers. Have you heard that? I hear it every year from some liberal friend, from some disgruntled friend, from someone who's been hurt, probably very really hurt by their church. And here's the problem. They those non-Christians who keep the law better. They're checking the list maybe better than some of us from a checklist perspective. But they're not doing it out of love for God. And therefore, they're not keeping the list at all. So, So we need to be clear about this for ourselves. We need to be very clear. I, I, I want to really drive this point home. So I guess my question is, when you examine your interactions with others about God's law, you're, you're trying to keep your checklist. Others maybe aren't, legitimately aren't as concerned about God's law as they should be. And you're engaging with them and trying to show them God's law in action in the checklist approach. Uh, Gauge yourself. 
does the way you keep these laws reflect him who humbled himself to the point of obedience even to the death of the cross? Is that what is imaged in how you relate to the other people as you check your boxes on the list? Or does your checking the boxes off this list most uh, reflect? Remember the guy who really cared about life? I think this was the 90s. He really cared about life, so he was rightly against abortion. So he took a bomb and he blew up the abortion clinic. I fear sometimes as Christians, when we get into the checklist approach to the law of God, the way we're keeping the law is like setting off a bomb that harms others. We can feel good afterwards by checking the list. It hasn't been the law of love we're doing. So we need to really examine our hearts about that. Now, that doesn't mean that the law doesn't matter, right? It means it matters how we go about the law as a law of love. So the other end of that spectrum, you got the checklist believer over here. And on the other end of the spectrum, we have the believer that says, well, let's not talk about the law. I'm saved by grace. Not works. Don't bother me about the Ten Commandments. I'm saved by Christ. He accepts me as I am. And then the question we need to ask, if that's you, is your definition of love more accurate than Christ's own definition? Because Christ tells you, you should talk about the law of God. Christ tells you, you should meditate on it day and night, because if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So if you really love me, you're going to think about them every day. Like being in a relationship. Long, long distance. Hey, someone's in a long distance relationship here. You don't wait till once a week to think about the person you're in the relationship. If you do, it's time to end it. I know that's not what you do. Law of love. Meditate on his law day and night. Meditate on it. Until you're loving it because you love him. And then you're expressing it in love to others. Well, I want to squeeze in one more thing here briefly. It should be a great exquisite joy to us to image God through keeping the commandments. It should be a great exquisite delight and joy for us to love God and others by keeping the commandments. But it should also be a joy to us to keep the commandments, knowing that the commandments are for our benefit. Don't make that your main reason for keeping them. But know that the law of God, the Ten Commandments, are beneficial to you. What does David say? In keeping them, there is great reward. Do you believe that? That's hard to believe, isn't it? Because once again, we live in a culture. They're not going to give you brownie points for keeping the Ten Commandments. 
No one in this community thinks, wow, look how they are honoring God today. They're in worship. No one thinks, no one thinks. They're content with, look at how little you all have. You're content with that? Good for you. But I'm not. Our society's out for everything we can get. No one is going to pat you on the back or give you a reward for keeping the law of God. Do you believe with David that in keeping his law, there is great benefit? Let me, um, let me conclude trying to put some imagery in your mind that will help you think of this as beneficial. One of the images is from C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis, and this is a paraphrase, C.S. Lewis talks about trying to take a shortcut and you end up in the swamp, in the muck and the mire and the stench and you're sinking and all of a sudden you put your foot on firm ground and Lewis's comment is that this is the good news of the law The good news of the law is like the good news of arriving on solid ground after a shortcut gone awry through the mud, muck, and mire. After fumbling about in the squishy, stinky mess, you're relieved to finally hit something solid and something you can trust, something you can count on. It's great reward. When you've backslidden, believers, especially those of you who the longer you've been alive, I assume you've backslid a couple extra times. Maybe. Hopefully not major ones. But when you start, when you start trusting the wrong ground, the shortcut often seems like a benefit at the first. Until you realize you could be dying here. The pleasures of Egypt, the treasures they offer seems good at first sin seems good at first and then you start sinking in it and you come to God's law and you're on something solid it's great reward great reward to be on solid ground or think of it as Kevin DeYoung summarizes He challenges us to see the reward of the law with this thought. Have you ever thought about how much better life would be if everyone, universally, kept the Ten Commandments? We may grumble about rules and regulations, but think about what an amazing place the world would be if just these ten rules were obeyed. We wouldn't need locks on our doors or fraud protection. We wouldn't have to spend money on weapons and defense systems. Your son wouldn't be off in Germany tomorrow. Or it would be a lot more fun trip. 
We wouldn't have to spend money on weapons and defense systems. We wouldn't need courts, contracts, or prisons. The law is not an ugly thing. It is a good and righteous and holy thing. Romans 7 verse 12. I challenge you to think about that quote this week. I think DeYoung's right. When was the last time you thought about it? Imagine a world where you don't need any contracts, no papers to sign. And having not signed any papers, you don't, you don't have to worry that the other person's going to cheat you. Imagine a world when no one ever backbites again. No one ever slanders you again. Where there's no prisons and you're not afraid for your children because of that. You can't imagine such a world, but beloved, imagine such a world. It's the world where the Ten Commandments are perfectly upheld and the image of God is restored. It is the world we are headed for as believers. When the new heavens and the new earth comes and only righteousness dwells. So it should be a joy to live heaven today. And we live it by keeping God's law. Let's pray.